Before we dive into this week's episode with Bridget Tijemeyer, I'm excited to announce that we have decided to host a giveaway. We are giving one lucky listener a chance to win one of the incredible guppy bags that we talked about in episode 17. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode yet, I highly recommend that you do. It's an eye-opening conversation, and it truly made me realize how important it is to zoom out from what we already know in order to see the bigger picture. Microfibers are possibly an even larger problem than plastic straws when it comes to the environmental impact as well as physical impact they may be having on our health. I dive into this topic deeper with Heather Young of She Changes Everything in episode 17, and with her sister, Jennifer Klotz. She'll tell us about the health impacts plastics and other endocrine disruptors are having on our health in episode 18. These are both two episodes I don't want you to miss. In order to enter the giveaway, all you have to do is leave us a rating and review mentioning episode 17. Share something insightful with us and let us know how each weekly conversation of this podcast has helped impact your life. Include your Instagram handle if you have one. If not, that's okay too. All you have to do is take a screenshot of your review and send us a quick email to contact at criticalconversationspodcast.com with the image attached so we know how to get in touch with you if you win. The winner will be chosen at random and contacted on December 19th, 2018. This giveaway is in no way associated with any other company. As hosts of the Critical Conversations podcast, we're inspired by you every day, and this is our way of giving back in return for you helping our community grow so we can share our message with a larger audience. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get this episode started. Welcome to the Critical Conversations podcast. My name is Brianna Reesing, and I'm a critical care nurse with a true passion for preventative health. I've seen firsthand the impact that poor diet and lifestyle choices can have on us long-term. So with each episode, we'll dive deeper into the realities of our healthcare system, what preventative health truly entails, and what you can do about it. Welcome back. This is Critical Conversations Podcast, episode 20. This is Bree, and I am back with Bridget. She's on the other line, and we are going to continue the conversation from our last episode together all about the microbiome and gut health and the huge role it's playing on our overall health and our immune system and our mood. And I think with this episode, we're going to try and focus in on gluten. It's a big buzzword. There's a lot of talk around it. And people like me have discovered that it's a must to avoid. And I want to get Bridget's insight on the conversation if it's something that we should all be avoiding, if it's something that we all should be learning more about, or if there's only a small percentage of us in the population that are truly affected by it. So let's get this conversation started. Hey, Bridget. Hey. (laughs) So happy to be here talking about the gut and gluten. (laughs) It's your bread and butter. Two of my favorite topics. (laughs) You are our gut health expert for sure. (laughs) It's really funny. Bridget and I are recording this pretty far in advance. It's November 5th. And this past weekend, I had Jen and Heather here. And Jen is also a registered dietitian nutritionist. And I think it's going to be just funny to tell Bridget about right now. I haven't told her this yet. But with the last episode with Jen, I think it was episode 18, she immediately, in correlation to talking about gut health and the microbiome, started talking about the power of fecal transplants. <laughs> no way. Yeah, That's it was, amazing. It was hilarious. <laughs> she went on this whole rant about the power of fecal transplants and the research around it and how it's benefiting people. And 
if you're listening now, the listeners have already heard that episode. Um, and I just thought it was so funny because the two of you are nutritionists. You went to school to learn about the power of food, but you're truly just so intrigued and have so much information around the power of the gut just from your personal experience with your clients. You've, you've realized that that's truly where the source of most of the problems are stemming from. No, it really is. Maybe we should call the podcast the Fecal Transplant Podcast. <laughs> I know. I joked with her. I was like, this podcast alone is going to normalize the stigma around poop. Like, we're just going to talk about poop all the time, and poop is no longer going to be weird to talk about. <laughs> well, it, it, it really shouldn't be, and that's what I say when I'm even talking to my students, and I'm like, you need to find out how many bowel movements a person's having a day, and what consistency of is it? Is it more like soft serve ice cream, or is it more like pebbly and you know, not as formed in all of these, you know, like very in-depth questions that you have to ask a person about poop. But unless you're asking those questions, you have no idea what's happening from an absorption standpoint from the nutrients that they're eating. So it's not like you're just what you eat. You're also whatever you absorb and don't absorb and what you poop out too. (laughs) And another thing that most people have no idea about is the fact that not only is it, whether it's watery, soft, mushy, or formed, or extreme hard those are all descriptive words as well but the color matters like the color color. of your poop can really tell you if there's something going on whether it's red from blood or it can be clay colored and almost white in or very dark green and those are all signals that something deeper is happening in your body Right. I remember uh, Dr. Oz and Dr. Royzen had put out this whole interpretive guide to different colors of poop probably like five or more years ago at this point. And I was just so intrigued by it at the time. But it is something to consider. And also if you have additional food in your stool that's going undigested, if you uh, if your poop is floating more in the toilet, oh my gosh, there's so many things. Yeah. My my intern from a few years ago ended up buying me this book that's called the Kama Putra book or the <laughs> Kama Pupra book. And it's 52 mind-blowing ways to poop and then there's like it's kind of like a Kama Sutra book with different (laughs) poop poses so you see them you know there's a million different poops with props poops with partners that's really funny I think I'm gonna try and find a link to that book just in case any of you are interested I'll put that one in the show notes so we can uh, all learn a little bit more about our poop (laughs) It's the perfect holiday gift. Yeah, perfect. Perfect stocking stuffer. (laughs) (laughs) That's too great. So let's talk a little bit more about gluten. Um, I know personally I didn't really understand why people were gluten-free until I had to experience it for myself. My best friend was even talking about avoiding gluten for a year or two before I started developing my health issues. She wasn't having any specific symptoms when she would eat gluten, But there was something she realized intuitively that she just felt better if she wasn't eating it. So she started avoiding it probably a year or so before I started developing my issues and looking into it further. And I never fully understood it. And I never even really fully believed her. I just thought it was another way for her to control her food because she had had issues with food and eating disorders in her past. And I I just looked at it as another way of controlling what she was eating and I've apologized to her since because now that I have discovered the power that food truly can have on the way you're feeling I've acknowledged that and told her like I'm so sorry I didn't support you on this 
sooner. Like it truly, gluten, just like a lot of other foods, can cause issues within us. And I just want to get your insight if you think gluten's causing issues for everybody or if it's just a small percentage of us that are truly experiencing effects from it. Right. Yeah, it's so interesting how it can seem like people are crazy until you feel like they're actually on to something. Until it becomes crazy, they're smart. (laughs) Yeah, I I think we can't really understand it until it becomes more personal. If it's affecting you directly, you seem to understand it a lot better. Or someone that you know that you've observed uh, experience a transformation in their health that is also you know can be a really big way to get people to buy in yeah but in terms of your question I really think that gluten is an issue for a large percentage of the population especially in the United States uh, because of the way that gluten and wheat are processed and so when we're talking about gluten it's a protein there's two proteins that it's broken down to called gliadin and gluten or glutenin yeah and it's found in things like wheat, barley, rye, and spelt, and any oats that want to be um, certified gluten-free. So it's it sounds like, oh, that's just a few foods to avoid. And then obviously anyone that has tried removing gluten from their diet or has seen people, you understand that it's obviously in a lot of different foods in our food supply. And the interesting thing is that in the United States, wheat is processed very differently than it is in places like Europe. And yeah. There's a number of contributing factors to this, but I've worked with a ton of patients that are college students that have had horrible GI issues and all these symptoms where we've removed gluten from their diet. They've gotten much better. They go to study abroad for the semester. They start eating gluten again, perfectly fine, no GI issues, come back to the United States, think that they can still eat it, can't eat it, horrible GI issues, and then have to go back to square one. So there's definitely something to gluten and wheat in the United States that's creating more of an inflammatory response that I think a lot of people are having issues with. In addition to the fact that gluten really is one of the main drivers of leaky gut, like we talked a lot about leaky gut in the last episode, and I'm not sure if I mentioned, I'm pretty sure after the episode was over, I was like, I can't believe that I missed gluten because it's one of the only foods in research that's been shown to actually contribute to leaky gut, which is, again, that separation of the tight junctions, which leads to uh, immune response to foods because your immune system lays right underneath that lining of the epithelial that becomes damaged. It's my understanding that gluten is the only food that we eat that is correlated to the release of zonulin, which is now a marker that we can test for in your blood, that the higher the level of zonulin is on, on any blood test shows the larger problem of leaky gut. So the higher the zonulin amount is shows that there's larger gaps or leaky gut symptoms. Is that correct? Or can you translate that? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, And well, gluten is definitely one of the major ones. There's from in terms of the amount of publications that have been done demonstrating and an association. So because this is such a problem and we have all these other factors that are happening in our environment that can also contribute to leaky gut, I think that Americans in general are just going to be more predisposed to it. Because if you have other factors that are contributing to leaky gut, like um, increased rounds of antibiotics, excessive use of antibiotics, and things that damage the gut, that damage that lining, then gluten just becomes an additional trigger to that. So it could be the the perfect storm 
of all of these Americanized ways of being that actually lead to more issues with gluten. But the interesting thing about gluten is that, you know, people always assume that gluten means you have GI issues. And what is actually true is that only about 50% of people that have celiac disease actually have GI symptoms. Uh, the most common secondary uh group of symptoms is going to be neurological. And then you can also see, uh, you know, various other things like fatigue and headaches, anxiety, uh, skin rashes, like I know it has been your experience. Um, In addition to that, you'll see cognitive decline, which would obviously be categorized under that neurological piece, but that can have to do with lower absorption of certain nutrients, like um, lower folate levels that... uh, are not able to be absorbed, especially in people that have celiac disease when they have damage to the microvilli that's there. They're like the shag carpet kind of that's in the lining of your intestine that's there to absorb the nutrients. You also will see that with a lack of iron absorption in people with celiac disease. I've also, anytime that a person comes to me that is super young that has osteoporosis, it's a, you know a huge red flag for me just in terms of their inability to absorb the nutrients that can lead to osteoporosis yeah. that can be more common and I've actually seen it in a number of people that were able to then have them see a GI specialist and get them diagnosed with celiac disease which is really like the underlying cause of their osteoporosis. Yeah that's so interesting because I mean a lot of people along my journey have asked me if I have been diagnosed with celiacs because my symptoms are so severe and my response is always, I haven't needed to pursue the testing for celiac because I know that when I eat gluten, I get a rash within 20 to, or actually it's digestive issues first tw- within 20 to 30 minutes. And then a rash starts to develop on my body. If not within a few hours, it's definitely there the next day and it, it sustains for a few days once it develops. Um, so for me, that's knowledge enough that I need to avoid gluten is there benefit for me to get further testing to determine that I actually am celiac or is just strictly avoiding gluten enough so in some I go back and forth on this because obviously if you were to then get tested for celiac disease it would require you to start eating gluten again right. and then experiencing <laughs> all of the horribleness Which that's associated with that miserable <laughs> and unnecessary to me And really the only way to confirm celiac disease is a biopsy. So the initial way that they'll screen for them is they look at two different categories of proteins that um, the antibodies to those gluten proteins. So there's four markers that are that are looked at in a conventional panel. And then if a person is elevated to those, then they'll refer them for a biopsy. You can also look at it from the other portion of it would be from a genetic standpoint. There's um, the HLA DQ2 and DQ8, which are the genetic markers that about 95% of people that have celiac disease have one of those two genes. And that's going to be something Thing that you pass on, you know, it's your genetics. Got so, it. um, in terms of getting a full biopsy and having a confirmation of celiac disease, in some ways, I do think that it's important because celiac disease is such a a serious disease that obviously the only real intervention for at this current moment is avoiding gluten one hundred and ten percent, but. A person that has celiac disease is going to be at uh, an increased risk of other autoimmune diseases. It will tell you more about your likelihood of having other kind of susceptibility to other autoimmune diseases. It can also tell you, I mean, they've done research in 
um, twins that show that people that have celiac disease are going to be much more likely to die at an earlier age than their twin that doesn't have celiac disease that still has the same genetics. Much more likely to die if they're continuing to expose themselves to the triggers and eating those things, or is that with a gluten? Even with absence from from gluten. So there's still possibly underlying things that we just don't understand yet. Right. But I'm, I don't know if it necessarily means – most functional medicine doctors that I work with don't recommend. They're like, yeah, knowing that you can't have gluten is enough. You'll just need to be gluten-free forever. Yeah. For but me, then, I just like to – like for me, it's just a more simplistic approach. Like I know that eating gluten causes symptoms. So if I avoid it and I every time I eat at a restaurant, verbalize that I have an allergy and I don't bring it into my home or cook with it, obviously. Like if that's really the only treatment we have for it now and I can control my symptoms and – minimize my exposures to the best of my ability with or without the diagnosis at least at least I'm still doing it even without the diagnosis I guess is what I'm saying is it it's the thing in my power and for me to reintroduce gluten for whatever I think it's like four or six weeks before you can even get a biopsy done just sounds like a lot of misery to cause more problems in my body potentially and I just I've never wanted to go down that road (laughs) No, I completely understand. Yeah. I completely understand. Well, and so also there's a ton of people now that have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Right. I could uh, so go through I'm... all of that and then the biopsy could actually be negative for celiac, but it doesn't mean that I'm not sensitive or having symptoms to it. Right. Right. And that there's a large percentage of the population as they're becoming more aware of the fact that this is a real diagnosis or a real thing that um, they've been able to show in research. People that have non-celiac gluten sensitivity are, which even when I was in college, it was like the only reason in all of my dietetics courses that you would recommend a gluten-free diet was for people that had celiac disease. And then when I would try to be like, I was so embarrassed that I was gluten-free even though I didn't have celiac disease, even Mm. though I had very notable neurological symptoms and like mini seizures basically from eating it, I would be so embarrassed to say anything. And then sometimes I would try to, you know, like speak up and speak out I guess yeah, but because it I wasn't have any research to confirm what I was saying and so I was like I just think that there's more to this than people with celiac disease but um yeah non-celiac gluten sensitivity is when you'll still have so anyone that has let me backtrack for one second anyone that has a gluten allergy would be a person that has celiac disease so this is something that I educate a lot on in clients that I see is that there's a huge difference between a gluten allergy and a gluten sensitivity or intolerance and so what I test for in patients that I work with is that non-celiac gluten sensitivity which is more of the antibodies that are produced from the Uh, gluten that's consumed right and it's just looking at purely like you have more of an immune response to that food that your body becomes upset by and so you your immune system reacts to attack attacks it like it's a foreign invader and it can lead to a whole host of inflammation autoimmune diseases specifically in addition to you know other issues but anyone that doesn't have celiac disease really it's going to be categorized more in a gluten intolerance place. And now that we know that this non-celiac gluten sensitivity is a real thing, they've been able to show in research that people that have non-celiac gluten sensitivity 
actually have an improvement in their symptoms after six months of abstaining from gluten, in addition to them able, being able to demonstrate that uh, there's changes in the IgG, IgA, and IgM antiglide and antibodies that they've actually have like measured in research studies. And that's and a decrease to, in the immune response to the exposures after it's been avoided for a long amount of time. Perfectly said, yeah. yes. <laughs> in a much easier way, you're right. <laughs> I'm just trying to translate a little bit. <laughs> Um, and they so they've found that in this one study that they did in 2016, I was actually I love the timing of this. I was just lecturing on this this past week, but um, they showed that individuals had a decrease in their overall symptom score. They had a decrease in their IgG, IgA, and IgM um, antibodies or their immune response, and then they also had reductions in the markers of the epithelial cell damage. So looking at any kind of leaky gut situation after a person was following a gluten-free diet for six months that it actually helped to improve that so there's actual physiological changes that happen in the gut still when you eat gluten when you don't have celiac disease but it's not an allergy it's an intolerance or a sensitivity right and the intolerance has developed because of the previous damage done to the lining of the gut from multitude of factors that we talked about in the last episode with you and that's like the long-term or the frequent use of antibiotics it's the living in the sterile environments and using the sterile cleaners all of the time it's not getting outside enough it's it's eating a lot of processed food with a lot of ingredients and preservatives that the body doesn't naturally recognize as real food. So it's actually harder on the body to process and digest. So all of those are the factors that the long-term exposure starts to create imbalances and weaknesses in the lining of the gut. And then it's just gluten seems to be coming into play as one of the other factors that can also create damage in the lining of the gut. And if you already have those other factors and then you add gluten on top of it, it's just a cascade of effects causing these intolerance symptoms and digestive issues and rashes. Beautiful. (laughs) I mean, it's it's replaying my whole health history and just watching it unfold. I understand it on that level now. Um, And I... I was covered in what looked like hives at first and then it was just like really rough patches of skin and it wasn't specific to eczema or psoriasis. But now I don't get it all over my body. If I do get a little rash, it's like little bumps on my right wrist or the place that's like my, like I call it just like my symptom signal or like my my warning zone that like, hey, what you just ate or what you were exposed to might have had a little gluten in it because I get like these little bumps just right on the inside of my right wrist and I might have digestive issues for like a day. I have nowhere near the extreme response that I used to have. If I were to pick up a big sandwich and eat a whole bunch of bread with a whole bunch of crackers and like a dessert afterwards made of wheat flour, there's a chance all my symptoms would come back to the extreme. But the I think what you just explained about how avoiding it for a long time, for six months or longer, can actually decrease your immune response and help heal the lining of your gut by becoming more aware of the things that were damaging it in the first place and just kind of backtracking it and doing the things to help you heal, you truly can improve your symptoms. And I've, I've done that. Small exposures at restaurants are nearly impossible to avoid. And when I do get those small exposures, my, my symptoms are much, much 
better and improved compared to what they used to be. So I just think it's interesting that our bodies can heal and the lining of the gut can heal. You just have to really become aware. And that's why we're having these conversations. Think about the things that might have been causing damage and then start looking into the things that might allow you to reverse that damage and start doing things to help you heal along the way. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's such a, you're right. It's so amazing that the body is able to heal itself in the way that it can if we provide it with the proper ingredients yeah. that it needs and removing the ingredients yeah, that are causing it. Right. I think that's the big thing. Not only do you have to start doing the things to help improve it, but you also have to start removing the things that are causing damage. Like just starting to take a probiotic is not going to fix the fact that you're also doing a whole lot of things that are like if you're eating a high amount of processed packaged foods every day it's that's one of the things you need to really think about and start to look to see if you can start decreasing that exposure while doing the things to improve right well and I think that one of the main uh, not one of the main but an additional benefit of going gluten-free is that it really decreases your intake of processed foods in general right obviously maybe not so much now that there's more gluten-free processed foods on the market than ever before like the Simple Mills uh, soft cookies that they have <laughs> so amazing I They're can't buy so them good. because I eat basically like the right. whole but um, <laughs> but they're because it's not as accessible, the gluten-free processed foods, it's going to deter you from eating, uh, like Brie and I were just talking before this, a donut from the break room at work uh, that you might have otherwise been tempted by, but but when you know that you shouldn't be eating gluten because you have symptoms to it, it helps to to also just decrease your processed carbohydrate intake, refined grain grain intake, and added sugar intake as well, which also is, you know, a win for the the gut yeah I mean honestly I've I've never really I people don't believe me when I say this but I've never really liked donuts like even in when I was younger and I had no idea about food and nutrition like yes that like the sweet flavor of it initially is a treat but I always intuitively knew that I didn't like donuts not because of the flavor of them but because within 30 minutes to an hour after I never felt very good even when I was like in high school or college, like it just, it was one of those things that I, I knew that there was something happening after. And so I wouldn't really indulge in them often. And if you can start to look at food, not just as calories, but looking at it as nourishing your body and information for your body and energy for your body, like you mentioned before, that's such a stronger reason why to just say no to the donut. And if you have something, a healthier snack available to you at the time, like reach for that instead. Oh, I am all about that. That is like the one thing that I am because obviously people are usually only focused about or focused on their diet because of their weight and trying to fit in a certain. Yeah, size and they look at and, the donut as like calories. Like, is it worth the calories? Like, I, that's never even crossed my mind. I don't really care about that side about it. It's like, how is the donut going to make you feel? Right. Yes. The energy that you're putting into your body for the energy that then you have to give out to the world is not going to be the greatest. <laughs> And it it changes things and it makes you, it's more of an incentive to not eat them because you're, um, instead of thinking of it as like, okay, well, I could burn these 200 calories off at the gym later. I'll just, you know, like count it in my macros. It's this entirely different mindset of, well, what kind of information is that going to feed to the rest of my body? Yeah, 
Absolutely. And back to the gluten-free products, like you mentioned, Simple Mills. Like Simple Mills is one of those companies that came on the market recently within the last few years that made gluten-free, a processed packaged gluten-free product a little bit better. It's still a process. Yeah, their crackers are awesome. I, I, they're the only crackers we buy, honestly. Like, I, I love them. The flavors are awesome. The ingredients are fairly minimal, but they're still processed packaged food. And that's what I want to shine light on is going gluten-free sometimes for a lot of people just means putting down the gluten-free bread and buying buying or putting down the regular bread and buying the gluten-free bread and putting down the regular cookies and buying the gluten-free cookies. And it's not about replacing products for a gluten-free product it's more about just like really simplifying what you're eating coming back to real food whole foods and when I was healing my body in 2016 and the majority of 2017 I was really focused on just really avoiding processed packaged foods even more so than I am now because I knew I needed to go a little bit more extreme in order to heal my body and in order to give my digestive system the break that it needed and just really nourish it with real whole foods so I think a big component of the gluten-free quote-unquote fad that confuses people is they might not necessarily feel any better or look any better or lose any weight because they're just constantly replacing it with one product with the next and it's not about just finding the next processed product it's more about getting back to the simple foods yes and also not putting a health halo around those gluten-free products right yeah they're not necessarily any better (laughs) they're they're not yeah and there's a lot of research on the health halo effect that is this idea they started the research with organic foods and demonstrating that people that would be given cookies that were labeled as organic versus just conventional that they would end up eating more of the organic cookies because their perception of it was that it wasn't as harmful and so they were more likely to overindulge the same thing is true with gluten-free cookies and gluten-free processed foods where people feel less guilty and so sometimes purchasing gluten-free items when you don't really need to be gluten-free and you're just doing it to make yourself feel healthier can backfire because you might end up eating more of it which is you know a really interesting concept right And honestly, the thing that worked best for me, because when I finished my elimination diet, ate the bread again, all my symptoms came back within 30 minutes. And I realized in that moment, holy crap, the bread is the problem. Gluten is the problem. This is the answer I've been looking for. But I can't eat bread for the rest of my life. What am I going to eat? I can't eat anything. And it just was like this onset of panic. Like, okay, now I can't eat gluten. What can I eat? And I had to go through this process of realizing there's still a lot of other food out there. And it's more just about like you were previously talking about your food norms. Gluten was a large part of my diet. I was, my morning would be gluten cereal, like a whole wheat cereal. Lunch would be a sandwich and dinner would be pasta. And that wasn't the healthiest way of eating. And a lot of it was organic because I was becoming aware of organic. So I thought all of it was good. I thought it was good enough. And I I didn't really look past the organic label until I realized like I really needed to be looking a bit closer into the actual ingredients and what vitamins and nutrients I was providing my body with and actually taking gluten out and not even eating any processed gluten-free products for at least six months after I figured that out really actually expanded the foods that I was eating. It expanded my the foods I was buying at the store and the recipes I was making at home. It really expanded 
everything for me. And at at the time, I thought there was nothing to eat. And now I'm actually very grateful for changing the way I was eating previously. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I think that so many people can identify with that. Jumping to this place of of just freaking out and not being rational and being so negative about like, well, what am I going to eat for the rest of my life? There's no foods left. And that, <laughs> I see that in clients that I work with all the time when I tell them that we're going to, based on food sensitivity testing and things like that, that I run on them where I'm like, okay, we're going to remove these foods from your diet. And they're like, what do you mean? What am I going to eat then? And then I'm like, right. well, there's lots of options. So right. let's start there. <laughs> but it, it's an easy place to go. And I even remember, I mean, I went gluten-free in 2005, and at the time, the only food products that were on the market that were gluten-free were Mary's Gone Crackers, uh, this Kinnikinny bread that still exists, I think, uh, to some degree, and Bob's Red Mill had some products as well. So those, I mean, and they weren't accessible at, like, Giant Eagle or Heinen's. Well, Heinen's is our local. (laughs) I was like, I've never heard of either of those. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't have a Whole Foods anywhere. I mean, the at that time, I'm not even sure if Whole Foods existed, at least definitely not in the Midwest. And so my mom had to go to this local health food store to get the gluten-free Mary's Gone Crackers and this, you know, like very interesting, oh, Vans was another, they had gluten-free waffles that she had tried to sell me on from like a transition right, standpoint. Right. And I just remember sitting at the kitchen table and eating that and looking at what my brother and sister were eating and just being <laughs> like, mom, this is horrible. Yeah, it's not the same at all. But you think that your life is over and then you realize, like you said, that it's it can actually, and this is true with anything in life, right? That anything that seems like it's the worst thing that could ever happen to you always ends up being the best thing that ever happened to you. And it expands you in so many ways. And it, it's so true with diet too, yeah. where uh, it can help to expand all of the ways of uh, cooking and shopping for foods and trying new recipes and different whole foods that you wouldn't have ever experienced previously. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's all easy to say in hindsight, but in the in the heat of it, it was really hard. But I had a very powerful why I I was motivated to avoid those things for a reason. Some people try to go gluten free just to see if they feel better, which more power to you. I always encourage you to try and see if it works for you. But if you don't necessarily see a difference in it, it's also not any reason to put stress on your body to like, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, in your opinion, do you think everybody needs to start going gluten-free? Do you think it's affecting all of us to some degree? Or do you think some people can not really worry about it, just try and purchase cleaner, maybe organic, simple products that have wheat products in it? But do you think gluten-free is necessary for everybody? You know, I don't think gluten-free is necessary for everyone, but I do think that it's worth trying. Yeah. Um, I've seen a number of people that, you know, we've done, uh, I run Cyrix food sensitivity testing because I really think there's a lot of horrible food sensitivity companies out there that aren't very specific. They don't purify their samples well. And it can give you misleading information, misleading information, lots of false negatives and false positives, which can be problematic on both ends. But the company that I use is Cyrix and they look at a number of different gluten proteins. And so we really like cover our bases. And it's interesting. I've even seen people that come back on a traditional panel where they're looking at like the transglutaminase, which is a marker that they use in a conventional hospital setting when they're looking at the, it's one of those four that I talked about in the beginning. Um, They'll come back completely within normal range for those. But then when we look at the Cyrix 
panel of the, you know, different proteins in the IgG and IgA response to them or the immune response, people will light up. And it's so interesting when you're not looking at the full story from a conventional panel, what can happen. But I've seen people that they remove gluten from their diet because I told them to. And so we do these this test and then they actually end up fine. And gluten doesn't seem to really create problems for them. We all, I also run a panel that looks at leaky gut because you can look at that from, like you said, zonulin and occludin levels in addition to that lipopolysaccharides. And they'll come back completely within normal range and no issues. And so I don't think that everyone needs to be gluten-free, but I do think that a lot of people can experience improvements. And then the other thing that can be scary and maybe too much to think about is that uh, Dr. Tom O'Brien, who's a a huge person, Dr. Alessio Fasano is a huge person in the research realm of gluten, and then Dr. Tom O'Brien is a huge functional medicine practitioner that is – Um, you know, has really moved a lot of gluten education forward. And he talks about how there's people that have gluten intolerances or even celiac disease that have no symptoms. And I've seen this where people have no real symptoms that you can identify as that you would pinpoint to being gluten. And then you see that they actually have a lot of internal inflammation that's happening that isn't manifesting in symptoms yet. So that's really um, interesting. And I mean, I, that might have been what was going on with me for who knows a decade or two. Like there's a chance gluten was always causing a small problem and it just kept building until it became a bigger problem. And those are yeah. that's why we just can't encourage you enough to just really tune in, pay attention to how certain things are making you feel experiment with taking gluten out of your diet. But don't replace it with the processed stuff, replace it with the more whole foods. And I think that just goes back to any diet or lifestyle change. You most likely will feel better by making that change because you're taking out processed foods and replacing them with real whole foods. And if you can just become more mindful about eating more real whole foods throughout your life and relying on the packaged processed stuff less, whether or not you're avoiding gluten or whether or not you're sensitive to gluten, just making that shift of becoming more aware of taking out the processed package stuff and introducing more fruits, vegetables, healthy meats and fats and nuts and seeds. Like that's where the nutrition is. And that's probably what's making us feel better all along. <laughs> right. That's such a good point. Yeah. And I also, you know, I think that eating mostly whole foods is such an important part, but even myself, like I have staples of what you could argue as, because I even argue that almond milk is a processed food, yeah, right? Yeah, I would because agree with you that. you have to process it yeah. to some extent. So um, I have a whole, you know, list of foods that I typically are on my weekly purchase list from Whole Foods because I have a separate Whole Foods list and then, you know, like regular food list. Right. And things like siete foods, almond flour tortillas, I buy weekly, the um, Kite Hill almonds yogurt, I buy weekly, the Simple Mills crackers, I buy almost weekly but can't do it every week because I usually end up eating too many of them. I also buy Jill's crackers so uh, I try to balance it out a little bit but there are things you know fortunately we have clean gluten-free processed yeah, foods that are accessible options. to people that can help to you know not make it feel like you're deprived and you can eat normal person food. Right absolutely. <laughs> Lentil pasta is another huge one that I buy every single week. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's true because we can't, like, we all, the majority of us are working full-time or we're in school full-time or 
we're raising a family or you're, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we're not (laughs) farming our own food, butchering our own animals, cooking every single meal at home and sitting down at the dinner table in a family community environment. Like that's like best case scenario if we could do that along with everything else we're doing, but there's only so much time in the day. So yes, I 100% agree with you. Convenience That does sound like an amazing life though. (laughs) If we could do both. your own food, sitting in town at the table with your family But we wouldn't have time for anything else. But I mean, that, that's just another factor, right? Like the community environment of sitting down to a meal, eating slowly, enjoying the company around you. Like that's another factor of how we're digesting our food and what that's doing to our gut lining. Huge. I've had people make tremendous improvements in their digestive health just by being more mindful and sitting down for meals. Because if you ask yourself like how many meals you sit down for throughout the day, I've never actually had a person say that they sit down for every single meal. Right. So if you do, then like message Brie because I would be interested <laughs> in knowing that. But most people don't. And that even can impair your ability to digest yeah. food. And, and that means sitting down without distractions, actually focusing on the food that you're eating, chew- chewing slowly and not rushing through the meal. It doesn't mean sitting down in the car and eating your food. It means like actually sitting down for every meal and just being mindful of what you're eating because our digestion is more than just putting food in our bodies and processing it through until we poop. It, our digestion starts with like actually touching and preparing the food and the scent of the food can actually stimulate the start of digestion and the digestive enzymes that are being produced. And then it starts with the flavor in your mouth and the chewing process itself releases mm-hmm. digestive enzymes. But most of us are eating a meal that's prepared for us by a restaurant or a cafe that we just pick up and eat it quickly we're on our phones or we're writing emails or we're, we're always doing other things and it's it's literally blocking parts of the cascade parts of the pathways and that in itself can just be a simple fix without changing anything else just sitting down and slowing down at mealtime so true yeah we're completely disconnected yeah. from where our food comes from who's preparing our food uh it's yeah i think that that actually is contributing it's a much larger issue yeah. than gluten but it is contributing to a lot of issues that, that we have and the more that you can connect and understand that's why i always love also buying local and trying to shop at farmers markets and you know understanding where my food is coming from because that's a really, really important part that we've just been trained to completely disconnect from and not care about. Yeah. And I also think that when you're sitting, it means sitting and eating your food, even if it's at your kitchen table and not scrolling through Instagram or watching TV or all these other things. Like we always use eating as an excuse to do something else, to multitask. And it's very, very not uncommon for people to only be eating when they're eating. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think there's so much power in just that one simple fix. It might take five to 10 more minutes for you to finish your meal, but it might be worth it. And it might just be the first step towards becoming more mindful of how certain foods are making you feel and going forward from there. So awesome. Thanks, Bridget. Love it. You're so great. (laughs) Um, We are recording so far in advance that I feel like we're getting ahead of the ability to answer questions for people. So I really want to start doing Q&A type episodes 
with you especially from questions people are developing from the conversations we've had in previous episodes. So if you're listening to this podcast today, seriously, message me, message Bridget. Um, You can find me at Critical Conversations on Instagram, Bridget at being Bridget, B-E-I-N-G, B-R-I-G-I-D. It's like rigid with a B in front of it. (laughs) That's what I tell everyone. (laughs) I love that. Um, Message us, send us questions or email us. Or if you're not already subscribed to the Critical Conversations newsletter, I send out Monday motivation emails. I'm sending them out weekly because our podcast releases on Mondays. And I'm sending out just inspirational things, like a simple quote, maybe a book or resource you can look into further. I tell you a little bit about the episode that just released, but I'm also going to start adding an ability for you to respond with any questions, suggestions, insight, or further things you want us to talk about on the episodes and we can start really just directly answering questions you might be having. Bridget is an incredible resource. We're lucky to have her and I'm giving you guys the ability to take advantage of that for free. So I mean, (laughs) there's no better way of getting your questions answered in this, in this platform than just reaching out to us. So that's the end of this episode and we will be back next week. Thanks Bridget. Thank you. 